You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Later on in this edition, we take a practical look at delirium, how to spot it and what to do about it. Delirium is missed everywhere. There's more research showing that delirium is missed within hospitals, but primary care physicians also, also miss delirium. But firstly, rheumatoid arthritis, non-biological drug treatments or both could suppress tumour surveillance and in theory increase the risk of malignant melanoma. A paper recently published in the BMJ has investigated this idea and Duncan Jarvis spoke to one of the authors to hear what they found. I'm joined on the line by Pauline Roscoe, a consultant in clinical pharmacology at the Karolinska Hospital in Sweden. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us about your research. Thank you very much. There's obvious interest in any association between these new biologics and cancer, given their modes of action affecting immunological response. So why did you choose to look specifically at um, TNF and melanoma in your research? Well, the risk of uh, cancer in association with anti-TNF therapy as used in clinical practice uh, has been quite extensively investigated in observational studies. Uh, There seem to be no obvious increased risk of overall cancer. Uh, However, there are indications of site-specific differences in cancer risk, uh, meaning that the risk might be increased for certain cancer types. And malignant melanoma of the skin is one of the, the cancers of particular interest, and it's viewed as an immunogenic tumor. Uh, which means that it has the potential to elicit an immune response. And it is possible that immune suppression, as for example with anti-TNF, could have an impact of, on the uh, development of malignant melanoma. Of course. Now, as you said, um, there's other research that's looked at, at similar links. Um, Was there anything different about yours? Since melanomas are relatively rare, uh, most previous studies have been... Uh, either too small or too short to allow for more precise estimations of uh, this risk. But our study is the largest to date and the only study that investigates the use of anti-TNF use up to a decade of follow-up and also in an entire country. Okay. So, yes, should we talk a little bit about the the population then, given that this is a population-based cohort study? How big was the population that you studied? Well, our study included the vast majority of all adult patients with RA alive in Sweden at start of follow-up, which was earliest in 1998 for the anti-TNF group and in at the earliest uh, 2001 for the biologics naive. And the study population included approximately 50,000 patients. So it is a large study. And you said you had a, a, there a decade of follow-up? Um, a maximum follow-up of a decade, yeah. Yeah. So given that population, how good was the data that uh, you were able to acquire for them? Well, we consider uh, the possibility to use an external source of information on melanoma, in in our case the Swedish Cancer Register, as a particular strength of our study. And uh, reporting to the Swedish Cancer Registry is mandatory for, for every newly detected cancer and also in situ cancers. Uh, both for the pathologist department and, and also for the clinician. And uh, validations have been done, and they've shown that there is a 
general underreporting of only a couple of percent of newly detected can uh, detected cancers. Um, so it's our belief that that most of the melanomas detected during the period of follow-up was indeed reported to the cancer register and captured also in the study. But obviously there is a risk that some melanomas remain undetected and there is a potential risk that the proportion of undetected cancer might differ among the anti-TNF and, and the biologics naive RA patients. However, uh, based on previous validations that we've performed on medical uh, charts the data, our estimation is that such detection bias is quite small or not substantial in our material. So you're fairly confident about yes. your results then. Um, so could you just very briefly outline for us what, what you found? Okay. Well, our study confirms firstly that treatment with uh, anti-TNF uh, therapy in RA is, is not associated with an increased risk of overall cancer. However, we've found a 50% increased risk of malignant melanoma in RA patients treated with anti-TNF compared to RA patients who are not treated with these drugs. But the, the risk of melanoma in the individual patient is still small. Mm. Um, is that a new finding? Has anyone reported anything similar beforehand? Oh, okay. Well, the finding of a non-elevated risk of overall cancer is, is very consistent with what has been shown earlier in most observational studies of anti-TNF as it is used in RA in clinical uh, practice. But regarding our finding of a moderately increased risk of melanoma, that finding is also in keeping with most, but not all, previous uh, studies. And uh, typically those studies uh, of melanoma, they've been based on considerably fewer cases of melanoma. And also they have not been able to separate separate invasive from in-situ melanoma. Mm. So um, given you, you say there that if there's a patient with an increased risk already of uh, malignant melanoma, um, for your clinical colleagues perhaps who are thinking about uh, prescribing anti-TNF therapies for RA, um, is there any sort of quantifiable risk there? Have you any sort of messages for them about about who should and shouldn't receive it? Hmm. Well, our results, they, they should be looked upon as a piece of the puzzle that makes up the risk-benefit assessment in clinical practice, but, but it cannot be taken as support for any fixed or quantifiable recommendations, I would say. Um, we found that there was a tendency that the risk of a recurrent melanoma was even higher than the risk of a first melanoma, although these results were not statistically significant um, and they need to be confirmed in larger studies. But uh, saying that, it, it seems prudent to, to consider this potential risk in the clinical decision-making regarding anti-TNF therapy in any specific patient. But at the end of the day, it's very important to remember that melanoma is still a rare event and that the benefits of anti-TNF drugs are often substantial for these patients. Pauline Roscoe, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much. Next up, how to diagnose and manage delirium. Edison Vidal, an assistant professor in internal medicine at the Universidade Estadual Paulista, that's in Brazil, has written an easily missed article for the BMJ on the condition. 
and I got some practical advice from him over the phone. I began by asking him what exactly is meant by the term delirium. Delirium is a neuropsychiatric syndrome that is characterized by disturbances of cognition, attention, consciousness or perception. Those changes develop develop over a short period of time and they have a fluctuating course. Most patients have a hypoactive form of delirium. If they slow down, they are sleepy or lethargic. The hyperactive form and the mixed form, uh, the hyperactive form is quite easy to diagnose. Patients are agitated, they are delusional, they have hallucinations. It's easy even for non-healthcare professionals to, to see that there's something very wrong. Right, okay. And then you say in the the article that 20 to 50% of cases aren't being picked up by healthcare professionals. Who do you think needs to be picking up more of these cases and, and why are they missing them? Delirium is missed everywhere. There's more research showing that delirium is missed within hospitals. But primary care physicians also, also miss delirium. There are several reasons for this under-recognition. Delirium has a very diverse presentation, so as you talked about, it can have a hypoactive form that's very easy to miss. Another feature of delirium that contributes to the missing diagnosis is the fluctuating course of symptoms. Once symptoms come and go, several professionals think that this should be normal. And I saw the patient, he was a little confused a couple of hours ago, but now he's looking better. It's not usual for healthcare professionals to use cognitive assessments in the same way they use the assessments of vital signs. It's usually considered that cognitive assessment must be something very complex. There are also some misconceptions about delirium. Many professionals believe that there's nothing to be done about it, either to prevent or to treat. What are the harms of misdiagnosis of, of delirium or, or a delayed diagnosis? What are the consequences? Delirium is associated with increased mortality. According to some references, in patients who de- develop delirium have a tenfold higher mortality risk during hospital stays than patients who do not develop delirium. That mortality risk persists twofold increased for about 12 months after hospital discharge. And there's an increased risk of functional decline and of being admitted to a care home. Delirium is associated with very high costs for healthcare systems and for families. How would doctors diagnose delirium then if they suspected it in a patient? There are several instruments to diagnose delirium. The most recommended one and the most studied one is the confusion assessment method. It can be performed in less than five minutes. It requires that four items be recorded and documented to diagnose delirium. The first one is that the patient must have an acute change in mental status with a fluctuating course over 24 hours and second, uh, inattention and either disorganized thinking or a third level 
of consciousness, nor is for certain the presence of acute change in mental status. It's necessary to to have reliable informants who is acquainted with the baseline status of the patient and who has observed him over several hours. Right, okay. So it's important to talk to the, the family and, and the carers then, do you think? Yes. Okay, sure. And and it sounds very straightforward when you say, you know, we've got to assess these patients for inattention and disorganised thinking. But how how would a doctor practically go around testing a patient for these? The best way to obtain that information, besides talking to the, to the family or the caregivers, is to perform some routine form of cognitive assessments. In the original paper uh, where the confusion assessment methods was described, they used the mini-mental state examination. Those authors nowadays recommend that other instruments be used, such as the Minicog. And the important point is not the instruments you are using, but that you apply it routinely for patient assessments. So in my practice, I perform a a very short cognitive assessment. I ask patients a few questions, such as where they are right now, if they know the reason they are in that place, being at the hospital or the office, what day is today, and what time they think that it is. Then I ask patients to repeat three words, such as car, hat, and brick. And finally, I ask patients to repeat the days of the week or the months of the year backwards. And the important point here is to notice how the patient behaves during those tasks and uh, how he behaves during physical examination and conversation. When you are conducting that brief assessment, you will notice if the patient is able to focus focus his attention to what you are saying, or if his uh, attention darts around the room, if he's easily distracted by external stimuli, and uh, if you notice that pattern, you should document in attention. And how should clinicians be untangling delirium from dementia? How should they be separating those two? That often represents uh, a challenge for clinicians, not only uh, distinguishing delirium from dementia, but also diagnosing delirium superimposed on dementia, which is quite common. I believe that the two most important informations to be gathered is whether there was an acute change in his mental status, if and how the current status of the patient differs from his usual baseline status. The second finding that's very useful is if there is some change in consciousness, which is very uncommon in dementia. However, that cannot be distinguishing delirium from dementia can be tricky, especially with some specific forms of dementia, such as dementia uh, with flurry bodies. And uh, sometimes clinicians are not able to gather good information. In that case, the most reasonable decision is to assume the patient has delirium because if you think that the patient is actually having dementia, then you wouldn't strive so much to find precipitating events because you wouldn't think that the cognitive status is reversible. Right, okay. So if clinicians are unsure, they should go ahead and, and manage it as if it were delirium. Yes. Okay. 
And and you said earlier that there's a misconception that there's not an awful lot that can be done for for patients with delirium. Um, so so what can be done? There's a lot that can be done to prevent delirium. As I said, there is strong evidence that non-drug strategies can be very helpful. There's a program that was developed in a set of five interventions. We're able to reduce the incidence of delirium in about 40% of patients at risk. Patients were reoriented, so come a couple of times during the day and say to the patients, Mr. Smith, I'm Dr. Vidal. You are in my hospital. You are being treated for pneumonia. Today is Thursday, and we hope that you're going to get better soon and you're safe. And this was the first intervention. The second one was to provide glasses and hearing aids for people who needed them. It's still, unfortunately, very common that hospitals take out glasses and hearing aids when patients are admitted, which only worsens their sensory deprivation, an important risk factor for delirium. Another intervention that was very simple was to help patients mobilize, so to get out of beds, walk a little bit, sit in a chair a couple of times a day. And another component was uh, helping patients to hydrate. And finally, there was a sleep protocol to improve the quality of sleep. And it's important because it's very difficult to sleep in hospitals. Mm. And with the precipitating factors, are any of these particularly important to stop? Once a patient does get delirium, the the most important step is to try to to identify and manage all possible modifiable predisposing and precipitating risk factors. So a thorough search for infection, for metabolic derangements, dehydration, and cardiovascular derangements should be made. Every element that's found should be treated. Quite frequently, it's very difficult to to determine the degree of dehydration of a patient. And the useful rule is that if the patient is not so obviously congested, that he must be dehydrated and that uh, volume loads should be tried. And uh, some of the predisposing factors, such as using multiple medications that are unnecessary, stopping anything that could potentially contribute to delirium. Great. And, and what about antipsychotics? When should these be considered? Antipsychotics should be considered only for those patients with hyperactive delirium who did not improve with non-drug interventions such as having some family member uh, stay by the patients and trying to calm them and to provide reorientation. And only if patients' uh, agitation are representing some danger or is compromising some vital treatment, this is when antipsychotics should be used. And they should be used carefully. The objective here is not to turn a hyperactive delirium into a hypoactive delirium, but just um, making the patient calm. Sure. Well, that's some very useful advice. So, so thank you very much for all of that. 
Thank you very much for the opportunity of talking to you. Both that research paper on anti-TNF therapy in cancer and the easily missed on delirium are now up on bmj.com. So have a look at the articles for more detail. Next week, we'll be looking at the impact Australia's HPV vaccination programme has had on rates of genital warts and asking how to manage pulmonary hypertension. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.